Section three of chapter twenty three of a history of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty three, section three. His friends assured him that the threatened address would not be carried. Perhaps a hundred and sixty members might vote for it, but hardly more. A hundred and sixty, he cried. No minister can stand against a hundred and sixty. I am sure that I will not try. It must be remembered that a hundred and sixty votes in a house of five hundred and thirteen members would correspond to no more than two hundred votes in the present House of Commons a very formidable minority on the unfavourable side of a question deeply affecting the personal character of a public man. William, unwilling to part with a servant whom he knew to be unprincipled, but whom he did not consider as more unprincipled than many other English politicians, and in whom he had found much of a very useful sort of knowledge, and of a very useful sort of ability, tried to induce the ministry to come to the rescue. It was particularly important to soothe Wharton, who had been exasperated by his recent disappointment, and had probably exasperated the other members of the junto. He was sent for to the palace. The king himself entreated him to be reconciled to the Lord Chamberlain, and to prevail on the Whig leaders in the lower house to oppose any motion which Dyke or Norris might make. Wharton answered in a manner which made it clear that from him no help was to be expected. Sunderland's terrors now became insupportable. He had requested some of his friends to come to his house that he might consult them, they came at the appointed hour, but found that he had gone to Kensington, and had left word that he should soon be back. When he joined them, they observed that he had not the gold key, which is the badge of the Lord Chamberlain, and asked where it was. At Kensington, answered Sunderland. They found that he had tendered his resignation, and that it had been, after a long struggle, accepted. They blamed his haste, and told him that, since he had summoned them to advise him on that day, he might at least have waited till the morrow. Tomorrow, he exclaimed, would have ruined me. Tonight has saved me. Meanwhile, both the disciples of Summers and the disciples of Trenchard were grumbling at Harley's resolution. The disciples of Summers maintained that, if it was right to have an army at all, it must be right to have an efficient army. The disciples of Trenchard complained that a great principle had been shamefully given up. On the vital issue, standing army or no standing army, the Commons had pronounced an erroneous a fatal decision. Whether that army should consist of five regiments 
or of fifteen, was hardly worth debating. The great dyke which kept out arbitrary power had been broken. It was idle to say that the breach was narrow, for it would soon be widened by the flood which would rush in. The war of pamphlets raged more fiercely than ever. At the same time, alarming symptoms began to appear among the men of the sword. They saw themselves every day described in print as the scum of society, as mortal enemies of the liberties of their country. Was it reasonable, such was the language of some scribblers, that an honest gentleman should pay a heavy land tax in order to support in idleness and luxury a set of fellows who requited him by seducing his dairymaids and shooting his partridges. Nor was it only in Grub Street tracts that such reflections were to be found. It was known all over the town that uncivil things had been said of the military profession in the House of Commons, and that Jack Howe, in particular, had, on this subject, given the rein to his wit and his ill-nature. Some rough and daring veterans, marked with the scars of Steinkirk and singed with the smoke of Namur, threatened revenge for these insults. The writers and speakers who had taken the greatest liberties went in constant fear of being accosted by fierce-looking captains and required to make an immediate choice between fighting and being caned. One gentleman, who had made himself conspicuous by the severity of his language, went about with pistols in his pockets. Hal, whose courage was not proportionate to his malignity and petulance, was so much frightened that he retired into the country. The king, well aware that a single blow given, at that critical conjuncture, by a soldier to a member of Parliament, might produce disastrous consequences, ordered the officers of the army to their quarters, and by the vigorous exertion of his authority and influence, succeeded in preventing all outrage. All this time, the feeling in favour of a regular force seemed to be growing in the House of Commons. The resignation of Sunderland had put many honest gentlemen in good humour. The Whig leaders exerted themselves to rally their followers, held meetings at the Rose, and represented strongly the dangers to which the country would be exposed if defended only by a militia. The opposition asserted that neither bribes nor promises were spared. The ministers at length flattered themselves that Harley's resolution might be rescinded. On the 8th of January they again tried their strength and were again defeated, though by a smaller majority than before. A hundred and sixty-four members divided with them. A hundred and eighty-eight were for adhering to the vote of the 11th of December. It was remarked that on this occasion the naval men, with Rook at their head, voted against the government. It was necessary to yield. All that remained was to put on the words of the resolution of the 11th of December the most favourable sense 
that they could be made to bear. They did indeed admit of very different interpretations. The force which was actually in England in 1680 hardly amounted to 5,000 men. But the garrison of Tangier and the regiments in the pay of the Batavian Federation, which as they were available for the defence of England against a foreign or domestic enemy, might be said to be in some sort part of the English army, amounted to at least five thousand more. The construction which the ministers put on the resolution of the 11th of December was that the army was to consist of ten thousand men, and in this construction the house acquiesced. It was not held to be necessary that the Parliament should, as in our time, fix the amount of the land force. The Commons thought that they sufficiently limited the number of soldiers by limiting the sum which was to be expended in maintaining soldiers. What that sum should be was a question which raised much debate. Harley was unwilling to give more than three hundred thousand pounds. Montague struggled for four hundred thousand. The general sense of the house was that Harley offered too little, and that Montague demanded too much. At last, on the 14th of January, a vote was taken for three hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Four days after, the house resolved to grant half pay to the disbanded officers till they should be otherwise provided for. The half-pay was meant to be a retainer as well as a reward. The effect of this important vote, therefore, was that, whenever a new war should break out, the nation would be able to command the services of many gentlemen of great military experience. The ministry afterwards succeeded in obtaining much against the will of a portion of the opposition, a separate vote for three thousand marines. A mutiny act, which had been passed in 1697, expired in the spring of 1698. As yet, no such act had been passed except in time of war, and the temper of the Parliament and of the nation was such that the ministers did not venture to ask in time of peace for a renewal of powers unknown to the constitution for the present therefore the soldier was again as in the times which preceded the revolution subject to exactly the same law which governed the citizen it was only in matters relating to the army that the government found the commons unmanageable liberal provision was made for the navy the number of seamen was fixed at ten thousand, a great force according to the notions of that age, for a time of peace. The funds, assigned some years before, for the support of the civil list, had fallen short of the estimate. It was resolved that a new arrangement should be made, and that a certain income should be settled on the king. The amount was fixed by a unanimous vote at seven hundred thousand pounds, and the Commons declared that by making this ample provision for his comfort and dignity, they meant to express their sense of the great things which he had done for the country. It is probable, however, 
that so large a sum would not have been given without debates and divisions had it not been understood that he meant to take on himself the charge of the duke of gloucester's establishment and that he would in all probability have to pay fifty thousand pounds a year to mary of modena the tories were willing to disoblige the princess of denmark and the jacobites abstained from offering any opposition to a grant in the benefit of which they hoped that the banished family would participate it was not merely by pecuniary liberality that the parliament testified attachment to the sovereign a bill was rapidly passed which withheld the benefit of the habeas corpus act during twelve months more from bernardi and some other conspirators who had been concerned in the assassination plot but whose guilt though demonstrated to the conviction of every reasonable man could not be proved by two witnesses at the same time new securities were provided against a new danger which threatened the government the peace had put an end to the apprehension that the throne of william might be subverted by foreign arms but had at the same time facilitated domestic treason it was no longer necessary for an agent from saint germain to cross the sea in a fishing-boat under the constant dread of being intercepted by a cruiser it was no longer necessary for him to land on a desolate beach to lodge in a thatched hovel to dress himself like a carter or to travel up to town on foot he came openly by the calais packet walked into the best inn at dover and ordered post-horses for london meanwhile young englishmen of quality and fortune were hastening in crowds to paris they would naturally wish to see him who had once been their king and this curiosity though in itself innocent might have evil consequences artful tempters would doubtless be on the watch for every such traveller and many such travellers might be well pleased to be courteously accosted in a foreign land by englishmen of honourable name distinguished appearance and insinuating address it was not to be expected that a lad fresh from the university would be able to refute all the sophisms and calumnies which might be breathed in his ear by dexterous and experienced seducers nor would it be strange if he should in no long time accept an invitation to a private audience at saint germain should be charmed by the graces of mary of modena should find something engaging in the childish innocence of the prince of wales should kiss the hand of james and should return home an ardent jacobite an act was therefore passed forbidding english subjects to hold any intercourse orally or by writing or by message with the exiled family a day was fixed after which no english subject who had during the late war gone into france without the royal permission or borne arms against his country was to be permitted to reside in this kingdom except under a special license from the king whoever infringed these rules 
incurred the penalties of high treason. The dismay was at first great among the malcontents, for English and Irish Jacobites, who had served under the standards of Lewis, or hung about the court of Saint-Germain, had, since the peace, come over in multitudes to England. It was computed that thousands were within the scope of the new act, but the severity of that act was mitigated by a beneficent administration. Some fierce and stubborn non-jurors, who would not debase themselves by asking for any indulgence, and some conspicuous enemies of the government who had asked for indulgence in vain, were under the necessity of taking refuge on the continent. But the great majority of those offenders who promised to live peaceably under William's rule obtained his permission to remain in their native land. In the case of one great offender, there were some circumstances which attracted general interest, and which might furnish a good subject to a novelist or a dramatist. Near fourteen years before this time, Sunderland, then Secretary of State to Charles the Second, had married his daughter, Lady Elizabeth Spencer, to Donna McCarthy, Earl of Clancarty the lord of an immense domain in Munster. Both the bridegroom and the bride were mere children, the bridegroom only fifteen, the bride only eleven. After the ceremony they were separated, and many years full of strange vicissitudes elapsed before they again met. The boy soon visited his estates in Ireland. He had been bred a member of the Church of England, but his opinions and his practice were loose. He found himself among kinsmen who were zealous Roman Catholics. A Roman Catholic king was on the throne. To turn Roman Catholic was the best recommendation to favour both at Whitehall and at Dublin Castle. Clancarty speedily changed his religion and from a dissolute Protestant became a dissolute Papist. After the Revolution, he followed the fortunes of James, sat in the Celtic Parliament which met at the King's Inns, commanded a regiment in the Celtic army, was forced to surrender himself to Marlborough at Cork, was sent to England, and was imprisoned in the Tower. The Clancarty estates which were supposed to yield a rent of not much less than ten thousand a year, were confiscated. They were charged with an annuity to the earl's brother, and with another annuity to his wife, but the greater part was bestowed by the king on Lord Woodstock, the eldest son of Portland. During some time the prisoner's life was not safe for the popular voice accused him of outrages for which the utmost license of civil war would not furnish a plea. It is said that he was threatened with an appeal of murder by the widow of a Protestant clergyman who had been put to death during the Troubles. After passing three years in confinement, Clancarty made his escape to the continent, was graciously received at Saint-Germain, and was entrusted with the command of a corps of Irish refugees. 
when the treaty of Rizik had put an end to the hope that the banished dynasty would be restored by foreign arms, he flattered himself that he might be able to make his peace with the English government, but he was grievously disappointed. The interest of his wife's family was undoubtedly more than sufficient to obtain a pardon for him, but on that interest he could not reckon. The selfish, base, covetous father-in-law was not at all desirous to have a high-born beggar and the posterity of a high-born beggar to maintain. The ruling passion of the brother-in-law was a stern and acrimonious party spirit. He could not bear to think that he was so nearly connected with an enemy of the revolution and of the Bill of Rights, and would with pleasure have seen the odious tie severed even by the hand of the executioner. There was one, however, from whom the ruined, expatriated, proscribed young nobleman might hope to find a kind reception. He stole across the channel in disguise, presented himself at Sunderland's door, and requested to see Lady Clancarty. He was charged, he said, with a message to her from her mother, who was then lying on a sick-bed at Windsor. By this fiction he obtained admission, made himself known to his wife, whose thoughts had probably been constantly fixed on him during many years, and prevailed on her to give him the most tender proofs of an affection sanctioned by the laws both of God and man. The secret was soon discovered and betrayed by a waiting woman. Spencer learned that very night that his sister had admitted her husband to her apartment. The fanatical young Whig, burning with animosity which he mistook for virtue, and eager to emulate the Corinthian who assassinated his brother, and the Roman who passed sentence of death on his son, flew into Vernon's office, gave information that the Irish rebel, who had once already escaped from custody, was in hiding hard by, and procured a warrant and a guard of soldiers. Clancarty was found in the arms of his wife, and dragged to the tower. She followed him and implored permission to partake his cell. These events produced a great stir throughout the society of London. Sunderland professed everywhere that he heartily approved of his son's conduct, but the public had made up its mind about Sunderland's veracity, and paid very little attention to his professions on this or any other subject. In general, honourable men of both parties, whatever might be their opinion of Clancarty, felt great compassion for his mother, who was dying of a broken heart, and his poor young wife, who was begging piteously to be admitted within the traitor's gate. Devonshire and Bedford joined with Ormond to ask for mercy. The aid of a still more powerful intercessor was called in. Lady Russell was esteemed by the king as a valuable friend. She was venerated by the nation generally as a saint, the widow of a martyr, and when she deigned to solicit favours, it was scarcely possible that she should solicit in vain. She naturally felt a strong sympathy for the unhappy couple, 
who were parted by the walls of that gloomy old fortress in which she had herself exchanged the last sad endearments with one whose image was never absent from her she took lady clancarty with her to the palace obtained access to william and put a petition into his hand clancarty was pardoned on condition that he should leave the kingdom and never return to it a pension was granted to him small when compared with the magnificent inheritance which he had forfeited but quite sufficient to enable him to live like a gentleman on the continent he retired accompanied by his wife elizabeth to altona end of section three